This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell, and I'm here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today on the show, we'll welcome back Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He's known for the work he does with the cold-blooded creatures here in Mississippi, including 30 different species of salamander. And you may have even seen Tom and other salamander enthusiasts carrying salamanders across the Natchez Trace as the Bucket Brigade. So today we'll get an update on these small but mighty creatures found around the state. And as always, we want to hear from you about your wildlife experiences and pet questions. So join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, don't despair. It repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. You're traveled out back west, and I know that probably sightseeing is on the menu, but you've got some exciting uh, family news also on this trip. Oh, yes. We got an, a second grandson was born uh, just as we were getting here. Actually, we didn't get here quite in time, so we we uh, didn't take very much time crossing the country to get here. But now that we're here, uh, we're playing with the five-year-old, or almost five-year-old, he's still four, and um, enjoying ourselves. And we actually, just after I talked to Tom, we uh, went out and found some salamanders. These are rough-skinned newts out here, and they're going to their winter resting grounds. And uh, we've got some weather moving in. It's uh, raining today, and it's supposed to get a good bit colder. And so we found a five newts leaving kind of the, the areas where they've been and going into the deeper woods. So that was pretty exciting and fun. We got to send pictures to to um, our herpetologist friends back home, including Tom. So any specific uh, things planned or is it just kind of enjoying uh, the family and, and the newest member? Yeah, we may be pretty close around here, but there are a lot of hiking trails really within walking distance, even of her house. And where we found the newts is close to Bald Hill, which is a a popular um, hill to climb. It would be a mountain in Mississippi, but uh, it's uh, just, I guess, the kind of the eastern edge of the coastal range. We're in a valley between the coastal range of mountains and the Cascades. So it's a, it's a good place to see wildlife, and uh, we usually have a lot of good birding experiences here. So uh, there's still hummingbirds, the Anna hummingbirds that are a little bigger than our uh, ruby-throated th- are here right now. So we're enjoying those, and it's a, it's a good place to get outdoors in spite of it being a little cooler than it is in Mississippi. I, I like the way you said that it's it's a hill out there, but uh, but here in Mississippi it would be a mountain. <laughs> so I like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Major is with us as well as usual. Good morning, Dr. Major. Are seeing anything uh, unusual or different at the clinic in the last couple of weeks? Yes. Good morning. Uh, not a whole lot of different uh, things are kind of 
changing a little bit uh, with the change in the season. Uh, we do see some differences, you know, maybe more uh, dogs and owners out uh, hiking, uh, running, this sort of thing. So maybe some injuries related to that. Uh, but it's been fairly consistent, uh, a normal normal week this past week. Uh, here is an email we just got. Uh, it says, my father-in-law has two older feral cats that often have eye drainage. We can pet them and briefly hold them. Is there anything that they could do to help them? Gosh, that's a, that's a good, a good, great question, actually, because don't get bitten uh, working with these feral cats. Uh, it can happen, and they can startle and scratch you pretty badly or, or bite. But if you're able to handle them, uh, you need to talk to your vet about possibly getting some eye drops uh, that might help antibiotic. Uh, and uh, I would say that that's about the best you can do. Some of this is seasonal with the cats. They're outside, I assume, and uh, can the drainage can change. It could be an infection as well. Uh, there are many uh, upper respiratory type infections, and that can affect the eyes as well. So uh, some of these cats are difficult to even think about taking into your vet, so you need to discuss that with your vet and see what can be done. Uh, and one thing, uh, I know that uh, when my cat had a, a, had scratches, I once had some uh, medicine I had to give to him, and uh, the old towel, swaddling him up in a towel to kind of keep those paws away uh, certainly helped. And, again, that would be a little bit more daunting with a feral cat, but I guess if they've established some sort of somewhat friendly relations, that might be doable. But, as you said, be very, very careful uh, around these uh, these feral cats especially. Right, and, and most of these cats would not have been vaccinated. Some of them may have been under some sort of some sort of program, but uh, you have to be concerned about uh, basic infections from a bite, as well as rabies, which fortunately we don't see uh, rabies much in Mississippi, an occasional case, but uh, certainly you'd have to be careful with that. We have an early caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning and invite Kenneth into the program, calling in from Jackson. Go ahead, Kenneth, you're on the air with us. Uh, uh, hi. Uh, thank you. I'll start with, with the, the bird call. Uh, I heard about 10 o'clock uh, p.m. Uh, uh, just this past Monday, uh, November uh, 2nd, I guess. Uh, it uh, was uh, something I've never heard before, but even stranger was that it, the rabbits called together. Uh, maybe it wasn't even a bird. Maybe it was a, a frog. Uh so like a broken record, there, there's no uh, pause between it went. Che, 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 direct, cree, 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 che, 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 direct, cree, 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 and, and all like that. Just on and on for about 10 or, or more of those. Uh, where is it? Um, can you describe kind of the environment that the, that the bird was in? Or that the, the animal was in. My backyard is uh, it's pretty wild for for a uh, suburban backyard, uh, and uh, you know, I have a yellow jacks out there in the in the in the bushes, which uh, stung me about ten times last time I tried to mow uh, a few a week or two ago, uh, and I was going to ask about about getting rid of them. Uh, so uh, we are, as a matter of fact, you know. Uh, you're talking about salamanders. I bet you I have a half a dozen different kinds of lizards out there. However, 
Yes, yeah, so some of them may be salamanders instead of lizards. Okay, well, so for no, your I'm bird, not a salamander. I haven't, I haven't uh-huh. seen a salamander. I came from the uh, places where I, I know salamanders. I like them too. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt salamander for anything. Yeah, they are sweet, aren't they? I think your bird, all right, that repetitive, but it's repeating different phrases is um, more likely to be like a, a brown thrasher or a mockingbird. Do you see either one of those kind of birds around during well, the day? You know, a mockingbird, a mockingbird it sits there and tries to show off by reciting its repertoire and there's pauses. Yeah. And uh, this one, although, nevertheless, there were no pauses and it was exactly the same, like a broken record. It was it was che che direct cree 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 che che direct cree 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 che che direct cree 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 just like that on uh, continuously until it quit. Yeah, that's that's the only thing I can think of that it could be. And we may have a listener that will tell us something else, but my guess is that it's it's a, a mockingbird that's kind of stuck on that same set of phrases. Hey, I'll, I'll do a little more reading for you and see if I can come up with anything different. And Joe McGee may be listening, and he'll. But I don't know of any frog that would do that kind of a call. Kenneth, if, Joe uh, would know if I'm sorry, go ahead, Libby. I was just going to say Joe will know, and he may be listening to us. All right, and also Kenneth, if there's ever a chance that you could get a picture of it uh, with your smartphone or whatever, if you snap a picture of it and email us. Uh, that'll help us try to identify what it is. Uh, thanks for your call, yeah, Kenneth. Yeah, record that sound, yeah. Uh, Libby, any thoughts on getting rid of yellow jackets? Oh, goodness. Um, avoiding them, of course, is the easiest thing to do when you can. Uh, almost always their their nest is in the ground, and this is a time of year when they get, you know, very mad if you disturb them. Um gosh it's it's a hard thing if you can safely do something with them at night that's the easier thing to do you know if you if you're reduced to having to use some kind of poison which i try not to do uh if you have to do that you can do it at night and that way you'll have you'll use a lot less of the poison and it'll be safer for you because they've all gone into that nest and they don't like to fly out at night all right. Hey, Kenneth, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and it's time for a break. When we get back, we'll welcome back to the show Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. He'll update us about the salamanders found around Mississippi and some other cold-blooded creatures. Also, Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. 
If you want to join our conversation with a question or a comment, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. So let's uh, welcome back our guest. It's Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Tom, always good to hear from you. Thanks for joining us again today. Hi, Kevin. Libby and Troy. Uh, so uh, in hey. previous shows, uh, sorry, Libby, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, hello, Tom. Haven't seen you for a long time. <laughs> and we're all well, well isolated. That is, uh, the, that's what we're dealing with here in this uh, pandemic, but uh, we can hope that uh, maybe in the near future things will ease up just a little bit. It seems to be some uh, maybe good news on the horizon with a vaccine, but until then, I think all of us have uh, done our best to try to do what we need to do to, to stay safe, that's for sure. So, uh, Tom, in previous visits, you've told us about the Bucket Brigade. It's a group of dedicated volunteers that goes out there, I think, on the Natchez Trace and sort of uh, scoops up salamanders and helps them get across the trace from one area to the other where they need to go. Uh, what's an update? Is the Bucket Brigade still active? Oh, yes. We've been doing this since about 2006. Deb and myself and um, Bill Stark at, at – um, MC started this mainly with spotted salamanders, again about 2006 when the trace, the northern and southern legs were were connected through Clinton, and traffic increased. Uh, within a couple of years, we had discovered that we were rescuing breeding spotted salamanders at the time. So they're terrestrial, uh, air air breathing like we are, but they move from the forest on one side of the road to to breeding habitat, a flooded pond on the other. Um, and so we intercept them en route, expedite the passages across the road. They aren't thinking about cars. They're thinking about about converging on the breeding habitat. Uh, they have no notion of the threat of vehicles. So they're not, they're not even crossing perpendicularly. They're crossing at whatever angle they come from toward the They're dead reckoning from wherever they live to the pond. They may be crossing the road at oblique angles, and the threat may be greater commensurately. Anyway, we started with that, and in 2009, we found a population of Webster salamanders, which are different in that they don't have lungs. They are strictly terrestrial. They aren't, um, they aren't going to breeding habitat, but they're, they were still in the road. We didn't know what was up, so we started working with those as well. And as it, we learned then, we were the first to demonstrate this, that uh, this is an ongoing research project, that these are mig- it's a, tr- a totally terrestrial animal that's migrating as well. They spend the summer... Deep underground, the six six months of our warm season underground, mainly in rock crevices, uh, in in rock outcrops, disperse from those around Halloween, come come topside and disperse from the outcrops to avail themselves of more feeding opportunities, and then later in the winter once they fatten up again, they go back underground and the females lay eggs. Um, so they're feeding and and mating topside, but all age classes migrate. But this, again, is what we demonstrated, courtesy of permits from the trace and help of volunteers and persistence. And we work in wet weather all winter. I want to touch a little bit more on the Bucket Brigade in just a minute, but we do have a couple of callers online, so let's talk to some folks. First, we'll uh, hear from Elzadia uh, calling in from uh, Memphis, I think it is. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. That's on the Arkansas side in uh, Creighton County. Okay, My go ahead. The cat and mice. I have noticed now that the weather has changed. Farmers are starting to harvest. I'm starting to see mice in my house and in my shed. So my question is, and I've, I've got my mom's cat, and <laughs> I borrowed him for a few days uh, to catch the mice that's in the house, but also I want to put them out in the shed on the farm. 
because I'm starting to see a lot of mice out there. Is there any risk uh, to the cat to be around these mice? And many of them are just still mice. Dr. Major, any thoughts? All right, I think we've got some technical difficulties going on there. Uh, if you will, keep listening, and we'll see. We'll get Dr. Major back on, and he'll talk uh, about uh, – oh, there you go. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, their cats have been catching mice, you know, since day one, I guess. You know, it's just part of their part of their job, uh, that and other small critters. But, uh, yes, uh, mice can have some, some parasites possibly that can uh, affect cats, such as tapeworms uh, and other, other type of parasites that they might have. Uh, that probably being said, you know, the reason they're moving in is because it's getting cooler. They're looking for places that would be great for them, such as your house or the storage shed, and they will overwinter. Some of these mice are probably out in the fields and this sort of thing just about all year, but when it gets cold, they're looking for a place. Uh, I would say routine parasite check of your cat uh, would be wise and uh, appropriate action taken, but I would certainly enlist that cat to help. All righty. Thanks for the call. So, yeah, uh, just uh, a, a cat is a good mouser, but just make sure that he's up to date on on uh, uh, vaccinations and that sort of thing and maybe regular checks in with your vet to make sure uh, n- that nothing has gone wrong uh, that uh, caused a problem. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. exactly. And a lot of times when you take your cat to the vet, if you take the cat in, bring a stool sample with you. Uh, cats really don't like to have a stool sample taken, and uh, I can attest to that from scratches and this sort of thing. <laughs> But uh, bring a stool sample with you. It's much better. Put it in a Ziploc or double Ziploc if you like. And it doesn't take a lot, but certainly uh, that would enhance the physical exam and make it a lot easier on the cat. All right, Elzadia, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines here for just a moment. And uh, Terrell has called in from Ocean Springs. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey, this was Carol. Carol, sorry. Um, (laughs) I have a question for um, the doctor about my little dog. He's just a mixed breed, 14 pounds. But when I take him for a walk, he just falls like crazy. Um, And I use a harness, but every time we take a walk, he throws up just great amounts of frothy stuff. Um, Why does he do that? He's healthy. I understand that. Does he throw up at the house when he's not being out on a walk? Nope. Never, okay. except when pulling at the walk. Okay. One of the things I can imagine, he gets excited on the walk. Uh, there may be some yeah. allergies and allergies involved. Uh, I think the idea of walking, especially if he's pulling like that, with a harness is good, but he still probably is going to throw up some froth or foam. Uh, I have a little dog, and when she goes outside, uh, she starts doing this reverse sneeze thing, and she may do it for a while simply because I feel like the grass or something there is an allergy, and it may be true with this little dog as well. I don't think I'd stop taking the walks, but uh, uh, certainly the harness is the best thing. But if he's not doing that at home, uh, I would say that there's nothing basically wrong with you doing that okay okay well thank you very much 
Thanks for calling, Carol. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Major, a comment to share with us, or a question for our guest, Tom Mann, about salamanders, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. So, Tom, you were telling us about uh, the Bucket Brigade. I'm just curious to sort of the logistics of how it works. You mentioned that the salamanders pay no attention to the roadway. You know, they're just trying to get from point A to point B. So do some volunteers have to wait maybe on one side of the trace, kind of diligently looking for any and and scoop them up as they see them? How does it exactly work? Okay, we have actually about, um, there are about eight sections of road right there south of um, the interstate in um, Clinton where there's a lot of activity. But given our, our constraints we really can't cover all that so we mainly work right around right north and south of milepost um, 86 on the trace our webster site is just north of that and that's where we have the silt fences that's a different situation i'll explain that in a minute but just north of that and south of that we have sections of road we simply walk up and down we walk out of the road when cars are present walk walking along it and dash out to get animals uh, when the cars have gone by and, and again, expedite their passage. We carry scoops of that. Try to herd. They're not particularly cooperative. On a busy night, we may pick up, uh, I may have six or eight in a scoop. Uh, adults, when I did this with the juveniles in, that are dispersing from the um, the breeding spots in the spring, I may I may have 35 in a scoop at one time and just run down the road, scoop those up, and carry them across so they don't get flattened. The fences, folks, when they drive that, those are each about 90-yard log silt fences, those are there to intercept the Webster salamanders coming first uh, out from the outcrops. They move about 75 meters to the trays, hit that fence, and that slows them up a bit. We walk up and down that fence, scoop the animals off the, the wood side of the fence mainly, photograph them, process them, and carry them across to the opposite side of the road, to the opposite side of that fence, put them in the woods, and we'll see them again in three or four months once they fatten up and carry them back across again. So one... Some of us, depending how busy it is, are working up and down that fence. Others of us, if we have heads to spare, bodies to spare, walk, walking up and down the road, mainly south, mainly south of that fence to pick up the mole salamanders, which are spotted salamanders and marble salamanders mainly. We see we see Joe's frogs as well. Some he doesn't see much of, including pickle frogs, but and Cajun horse frogs, he doesn't see those. Um, but that's 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 mainly it, and it can be very busy. On a busy busy night, we may pick up 500 animals on that uh, silt fence on one side of the road, and that's that's a really busy night. On a busy night with the spotted salamanders, we may pick up in the marbles, we may pick up 100 plus uh, on, a, on a busy night. And again, they're taking little vectors. They're dead reckoning from where they come out in the woods to where the, they know the pond is. And their crossing may be obliquely, may be perpendicularly, um, but they're not they're not concerned about traffic. So it's pretty much though, as you say, a scoop and go, scoop some up and exactly. get them across there. And we record. Uh, I have a little notebook, and we try to keep uh, for the webs. We keep pretty particular information. That's a scientific research project. Again, courtesy of permits to the trace, and this was undertaken again with my wife, uh, Dr. Deborah Mann, recently retired from Millsaps. We started this in about 2010, but we have just leagues of folks that have helped us out over the years, students, other students, students, professors from um, MC, from Millsaps, from uh, USM. Uh, it's been a nice project. 
So you've talked about three species of salamanders, the spotted, the marbled, and the Webster. Got about three minutes till our next break. If you could maybe give us a, a brief description of, of what each of those three look like, size and color and that kind of thing. Okay, we'll start with the ones that have already moved one way, and that's the marbles. And most folks that have turned logs in the woods may have seen those. They're real chunky, uh, black background color, maybe four inches long, something like that. Uh, they have a, a ladder pattern on the back. Uh, it can be white, uh, more whitish for the males, and more silvery for the females. But they're really chunky animals, and they they're fall breeders. Uh, they move from from their upland habitats down to breeding basins, which are dry at that point. Mate, the females lay eggs and wait for the rain to come to flood the basins. And they're at that point right now. They've already mainly crossed them or even headed back. Um, the spotted salamanders will be the next ones. To go, the, well, let's start with the Websters. Websters are a different, whole different family. The Plethodontidae have no lungs. These are small. They're three inches long. Most of ours have an orange top tail, um, a more dully hued back, but they're, they will be hard to see when you're driving down the road. Uh, about, again, earthworm size, about three inches, three inches long. Uh, the next one to breed will be the. Um, Spotted salamanders, those are large. A big female might stretch from my fingertips to my wristwatch. Um, black background color again, with, with generally with bold yellow large spots. Not the, not the little whitish yellow spots you see on the more widely distributed um, uh, and non-migratory uh, slimy salamander. All right, uh, time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Tom Mann, from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science about salamanders and other cold-blooded creatures. We'll talk about how you can become a volunteer with the Bucket Brigade that Tom has talked about. Also, Kent has called in from Brandon with a dog question. We'll get to his call, and we'll get to your call when you make it at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you'd like to join our conversation with question or comment, the phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you're a regular Creature Comforts listener, you know that uh, Joe McGee is one of our uh, favorite guests to have on, a, a, a frog expert and uh, knows a lot about birds as well. We had a call early in the show. Uh, a call, I think it was Kenneth from Jackson wanted to know uh, what sort of bird he was hearing. Uh, Libby guessed the northern mockingbird, and Libby, Joe agrees with you that that probably is what uh, Kenneth heard. So a good uh, bit on your part there. And again, thanks to Joe for when he's on the air with us, but also when he listens because he's our resident expert and can always call in and help us out uh, when we get those sorts of questions. We'll have more with Tom Mann in just a minute, but first, Kent is on the line from Brandon with a question for us. Go ahead, Kent. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. We have one of whom is probably 10 to 12 years old minimum, and the other one about four or five. The oldest one has, for a couple years, sneezed many, many times at a time. 
like 10 to 15 times in a session than he'll be able to walk on. The younger one is to the point of just sneezing two, maybe three times, and then being able to walk on. Um, do dogs have allergies? What's going on? I don't understand. Gosh, that's, that's a little unusual for two dogs in the household to be doing virtually the same thing. I would be concerned with the older dogs, certainly if there was some sort of uh, growth or uh, the sort of thing in his nasal passage. Uh, however, since they're both doing this, you would think it's probably an allergy of some sort. What if you talk to your vet? What if what has been said as far as uh, have you talked to your vet about this? No, we have not. I'd be I'd be concerned about an allergy if both dogs are doing it. Uh, I don't know if you have anything strange growing in your yard. Uh, certainly, uh, I have seen dogs sneezing, but not like you're talking about. It sounds like the older dog is doing it pretty pretty often, right? Uh, yes, yes. And for a prolonged period of time, you know. Right. Uh, so, anyway. You know, the antihistamines uh, certainly uh, would be worth a trial, Uh to give, you know, just Benadryl, uh, I would say. 200 just, milligrams is the usual dose of dogs, isn't it? Depends on how big the dog is, certainly. How much does the dog weigh? Big. Like 60, 70 pounds? Oh, my, no. No. He's uh, 12 pounds. So how, oh, how oh, oh, okay. Milligrams. Yeah, I, I would I would be very careful with that. You don't overdo it. Uh, I'd say at the most one milligram per pound. You can do one milligram to two milligrams per pound and uh, be within safety range. Uh, one thing about Benadryl, it only lasts about eight hours, uh, but certainly you could do a trial. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It should not hurt. However, if that does not work, you really need to get uh, the dogs in to see the vet. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for your question, Kent. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's stay on the phone lines for just a moment, and we'll continue now with Edward calling in from Jackson. Go ahead. You're on the air with us. Hey, Troy. It's Edward Townsend. How you doing, man? Yes, yes. I recognize your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hey, look, uh, my little crazy dog has, his little Frenchie has... uh, this small little, like, it looks like the size of a BB on his right eye. I mean, you know, it doesn't protrude outward, but it's just sort of opaque colored. The it's on top the lid? Of his eye. On, on the lid? No, of on the his corner. eyeball itself. Okay. Okay. Uh, that really should be looked at. I'm not sure exactly. Is it in the sclera, the white part of the eye, or is it on the cornea? Um, the, the white part. Okay. Uh, should, the top part of his eye. Right. You really should have that checked just to be sure. Uh, it, it, is it growing, or have you noticed, just noticed it? I don't think it's getting any larger, but okay. it, he seems to be like uh, on the carpet, likes to rub its face. Right. Right. I don't know if he's rubbing that or what. Well, I'm always concerned if there's something going on with the eye, and I'd rather have someone look at it rather than... Uh, let it go, and then have a real problem. So I think it would be wise to have it looked at, okay? Okay, well, I'm coming to see you tomorrow anyway, so I'm left the clock. <laughs> okay. All <laughs> I right. just want to call, you. man. It's great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. 
Thanks, Edward, for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Major, a brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, or a question about salamanders for our guest Tom Mann, you can give us a call because we have some open phone lines at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Tom, you mentioned that there are lots of sections of I-20, or, I mean, I'm sorry, the trace oh. near I-20 that you would potentially like to cover. Um, do you Are you always looking for more volunteers? And if so, how does someone sure. become a member of the Bucket Brigade? Sure, they can contact me, but they need to remember again, this is mainly in the winter and mainly on wet nights. Um, although both of the uh, the spotted and marble salmon, as we discussed, have lungs, they, they definitely prefer to move during rain on wet nights. Um, uh, they are terrestrial, but they prefer to move in the rain. Little Webster salamanders are lungless. They have to have wet skin, so they need moist conditions, but it does not need to be raining. We'll get them frequently in numbers on our fences uh, when the leaf litter is wet on a day or even on night following. Uh, you know, it can be within 24 hours of a rain. So they don't, they don't, they aren't, I'm, I don't think they even speed up in rains, but they, um, but they have to have wet condition or moist conditions to keep the skin wet, which leads to an observation I was hoping someone would ask about. I'm going to get it in, given what's the advantage of being lungless. First off, you can't choke to death. They can eat. They can eat a big earthworm if they can manage it without blocking an airway. They're breathing through their skin. The disadvantage is the skin can dry out. So they, they, they strictly move. And in fact, that's probably why they spend... Uh, the summer deep underground. I mean, that's five or six months underground without feeding so they don't dry out. Um, but it's an interesting um, difference. But our most abundant family of salamanders, the Plethodontidae, all lack lungs, so they have this similar feature. It's kind of interesting. Um, so oh, and, so I, back to the end. So, again, volunteers, they can contact me here at the museum. Um and they need that. Actually, I would. It, it would be better if folks live close to the trace. Ideally, Clinton folks who don't have to drive a long way to do this. And again, we're out there uh, four to six hours on most wet nights from now through uh, end of March. There'll be a, there'll be slow, a slow period around Christmas, but then it picks up again with spotted salamanders moving. After in January, we use the first ones in the country to report that. Um, there's an outfit in, at, U, at the University of Connecticut that monitors. Uh, migratory m- movements of uh, spotted salamanders nationwide, and we're usually the first. Sometimes we get scooped by Global Brown down at USM, but not often. We use the first. Go ahead. Uh, so, if someone is volunteering, you mentioned you know kind of cold, wet weather. What would you recommend they show up with? Uh, obviously, rain gear. Do they need any kind of? We have we have we, the trace insists that we do this as safely as we can. So we have we have reflective vests for everybody. Uh, the umbrellas we have, again, courtesy of the trace, are reflective, so we have those things. Um, but nights we need an umbrella. Um, but they would need to touch base with me first for all that stuff. I keep the trace surprises to who's volunteering to help us and when. Our best volunteer last year uh, was Dr. Charles. Um, I'm hitting a uh, Libby, chime in here. <laughs> Sherwood. Sure, well, thank Sherwood. you. He was wonderful. He would show up in all kinds of ridiculous weather. Uh, another good volunteer in the past has been, we, we've had lots of good volunteers, but I just feel the need to shout out to um, Colleen Gregg, who would come out in hailstorm. She was great. She didn't care. Uh, she doesn't like spiders, but otherwise she was impervious to, to threats to her. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned that you work closely with, uh, uh, you know, the, the officials of the Natchez Trace. So could they anybody start their own bucket brigade or or would, can anybody just start their own bucket brigade? Well, they would have to contact me on a bench, and I can provide that info as well. But uh, no one else is doing that. There are, other, there, are other place, there are lots of other places where these sorts of events occur. Not so much the Webster's, but the Spotted Sandlands, the Marbles. They're going to be doing something similar in lots of areas. If the traffic is too heavy, they probably those populations have been, you know, have been curtailed or died back long ago. But there are other places that, uh, particularly from uh, south to um, to uh, toward um, Natchez, uh, the Rocky Springs area, Libby's done camping down there. That's another Webster spot, and they probably cross the road there too. But the traffic is not so bad there that it's not it's not that big a deal. It's more of a big deal where we are, when there's lots of traffic, lots of traffic. Again, uh, Diana Bench would be the would be the contact for any of that. Okay, and she works with the trace. She yes. Okay, um, one salamander that we've not mentioned yet. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the mud puppy salamander. Won't be crossing the road. Entirely terrestrial. Four legged with gills. Um, won't see those on the trace. Maybe under the trace in some places, but you won't see one in the road. And we have. Um, Seven families and about uh, 29 species of salamanders, most of which we're not going to see crossing the trace. <laughs> and again, the, the the ones that are are, are they need those uh, the pools on the other side of the trace in order to breed. Is, well, is again, that right? That's true of the marbled and um, spotted salamanders. Not so with our Websters. The Websters are they're they're centered upon rock crops. There's essential for their summer survival. They come out and disperse from those, mainly, we think, to increase their feeding opportunities. If you come out and stay just above your little small small patch of oversummering rock, you're not going to have as much, you won't have access, access to as many invertebrates in the leaf litter as you would if you can disperse. So they're dispersing. The first year, the second year juveniles, and the adults all disperse. Mating occurs among adults all along the way, but the, the um, egg laying is underground in those rock crops, um, and that's during the summer. So this is strictly, so they, they happen across at our spot of the trace because it's not too far away to be beyond that dispersal radius. Um, so we get them maybe moving 180 meters that we know of from the rock crop. They can probably move farther than that, but most are not moving uh, quite that far. And the trace happens to be about 80 meters from this outcrop, and so a lot of them do cross. The numbers really went up, uh, courtesy of our, since they're not dying on the road, uh, numbers uh, scooted up for the first four years we did that, and we were getting, again, roughly 1,000 in a season by the fourth, fifth year. And then the turkeys found out about that, and this is speculative. <laughs> Joe's probably wincing. The um, the turkeys apparently stumbled upon this new resource, and we began to see a lot of miss- animals missing tails at the fence. Um, and on the way back, and numbers went down for the next couple of years. They're about halfway between where we started and peak years right now. Better than they were. Better than they were, but we suspect that the uh, foraging turkeys are scratching them up. And that may be one benefit. This, again, is speculation about the orange tail. The tail is strongly contrasted with the back. If an animal happens, if it, say a diurnal color orange predator happens to scratch one up and the animal's wiggling, they see that orange tail and peg it. Tail breaks off, and the, and the more important part of the animal can escape into the leaf litter. So we see. I think I sent a picture to Job yesterday of an egg-laden female um, with no tail, and she's got a problem because she's going to. She's going. She's heading back to the uh, outcrop for the summer, 
and she's going to guard the guard those eggs, but she has no no nutritional reserves stored away in the tail. She's probably going to expire doing that, unless she can resorb the eggs and start again next year. We don't. That's all speculation, but. Uh, other things eat them as well. They're, so they're an important part of the food chain. They eat lots of little uh, leaf litter invertebrates, and again, it can be eaten by other things. So uh, you've told us a little bit about uh, uh, several species of, of salamanders. If someone is interested and wants to learn more about some of the salamanders found here in Mississippi, is there a good uh, reference or maybe some sort of guide that you would point them to? Oh, gee, aside from contacting us. <laughs> well, that would work. <laughs> Actually, you know, now that you mention it, um, Craig, Craig Geyer, and um, a standard for a lot of us herpers in the South for a long time has been Bob Mount. He was at Auburn University. Bob Mount's reptiles, and, or maybe it was amphibians and reptiles in Mississippi. No, it's reptiles, I'm sorry, reptiles and amphibians in Alabama. So all of us have used that. That's being redone right now, portions of it, by Craig Geyer and Mark Bailey. And Deb and I are assisting Mark and Craig with um, the fine-tuning their Webster's and Southern Zigzag accounts. So that's that would be that's not out, that part is not out yet, but it will be out in the not too distant future. Outside of that, you got field guides, the uh, updated uh, Peterson field guide, and you got the museum here. If they have a question, then contact us. All right, time for our last break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue our talk with Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Major, still on hand, ready for your pet questions. Uh, join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today, Tom Mann from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Still time to join the conversation. Give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app or listen on the MPB Public Media app where all of the MPB Think Radio programs are available to you on your schedule. Uh, so, Libby, you wanted to, to chime in with a comment. What do you have for us? Oh, I was just going to say a little bit more about the newts here in Oregon. One of the most interesting things probably is that they have a neurotoxin. You know, we've learned that uh, um, most amphibians are small and kind of um, delicate, and they, Mother Nature has given them a little added gift with a little toxin sometimes in their skins and uh, some toxin that can help them kill their um, prey quickly. But these rough-skinned um, newts in Oregon and all along the West Coast have taken it quite to the limit, and uh, they're probably the most toxic um, salamanders in the world. And um, actually, uh, there's kind of a, a strange uh, relationship with their their only known predator is a uh, um, a little garter snake that lives out here that happens to be immune to the poison. And that's the only thing we know of that feeds on the rough skin newts. 
and the newts keep up in their poison a little bit and the um the uh the little predator snakes can kind of up their resistance and they've even started the predatory snakes will kind of halfway swallow and spit out the newt to kind of test it and somehow they know oh i can tolerate this one and then They'll either leave it alone if it's too strong or they'll go ahead and swallow it and seem to be fine. So that's just kind of a strange twist. And, uh, of course, the other thing that these newts have to deal with are cars, just like the same problem that the salamanders that Tom is rescuing. They have to migrate sometimes pretty far distances from their winter and summer grounds. And so they also get into the traffic. And there's a nematode that will kill them. So there's a tiny parasite and one predator. And other than that, these newts are pretty much left alone as they move through the woods. All right. That's interesting how uh, the they keep trying to one-up each other. It's like, well, I've immune to your poison. Well, I'll up my poison then. So that's, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. There's one strange record here in the literature that uh, a couple years ago, a human actually ate one of the newts. I don't know if that was on a challenge or what, and it <laughs> did kill him. Okay. So, reportedly, <laughs> that is, that's in the literature. I don't know how how um, accurate that is, but it's it's all over the internet information about these newts. Uh, Libby. Yes. Okay. Have you come across anything in literature on the toxicity of garter snake bites that might be uh, associated with their ingestion of those newts? I think I may have seen something at one time. Really? Oh, I'll, I'm I'll not look positive. into I that. I think thing. I saw something on that at one time. So. Okay. We've been watching for the snakes, but we've not seen one following these newts. That's interesting because that, that Tom brings that up because that would be you know if if they uh, can eat those whether that uh, in, in does any effect on on their on venom as well. We've got a caller yeah, on the line. See, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say we see that in, in insects that they eat the toxin and then are able to use it to their benefit. Yeah, this would not be a venomous snake, but it would of its own. But if the teeth were, if you will, tainted with the uh, toxin from the skin of the after you might have or the newt, you might have an issue. All right. Yeah, that's we have. We, by the way, we have newts crossing our section of the trace as well, but not in big numbers. All right, uh, Bill is on the line from Iron City, Tennessee. Bill, good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. How are you today? Doing good. What do you have for us? I'm really enjoying your show. Thank I was you. sitting on my deck yesterday, and I had I have them. It was an amazing sight. A bobcat trotted out of the oh. pine farm behind my property. And just slowly trotted across my yard. That's great. I've seen that only once at my house. That is so cool, isn't it? It was beautiful. I'm a transplant from up north. I've been living down here for three years. I built my retirement home here. My wife and I are going to retire. We have a log home. I've got 50 acres of pine farm behind me, and I constantly have deer walking through my yard, and I just love it. But then to see a bobcat, that was just amazing. Hmm. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, this well, is the most you must have a good place habitat. in the world. <laughs> yeah. All right, Bill, uh, welcome to the South, and uh, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Um, Tom, only have about a minute left. So um, why is the Bucket Brigade the best way of doing this? Are there not other maybe tech fixes like tunnels beneath the roadways or, or those sorts of things that might help out the salamanders? 
Salamander Tunnel, the Spotted Salamander Tunnel in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I have spoken with the folks that have monitored that, and it works to some degree. Here's the, the big issue, but it, but it's not it's not a good tech fix. Um, they, all, all, everything we talked about today comes topside to move. They mainly live underground or under the leaf litter, but when they come to the top in rainy weather, it's to make progress. They aren't inclined to go back under, even if what we put in for them, say a tunnel under the road, would be safer. They aren't. That's not a natural thing to, to do. They're they're coming topside to make to make movement. They're not going back down to do that. Now, if they were guided by by, by interception panels and to something like that, and if the top of such a tunnel had grates and they could they could see the sky and get rain. They can be. They can move across under under situations like that. You would need more than one tunnel. For example, we we're we're monitoring half mile of road. Uh, it would take more than one tunnel to cover that. So it's, there's no easy tech fix yet. But the trace intends to modify the road at some point in the future, or near future, to accommodate these things if we can come up with something. All Thanks. right. Gonna have to hold off there. That's uh, the show for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you want to hear today's show or a previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org/slash creature comforts. Our show is produced each week by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Liz Gill. For Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Tom Mann, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference, heard only on MPB Think Radio.